Welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. Ed Smith and I are off this week, but we're pleased to bring you a show from the Heartland Labor Forum, one of the oldest labor radio shows in the country. Billing itself as radio that talks back to the boss, the Heartland Labor Forum has been around for more than 30 years, airing Thursdays at 6 p.m. and Fridays at 5 a.m. Central Time on KKFI 90.1 FM Kansas City Community Radio. The Heartland Labor Forum is one of the members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. More than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts across the country and around the world that, like your rights at work, focus on issues affecting working people. Ed and I will be back next week. Enjoy the show and stay safe. show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. On tonight's show, we have two really exciting segments. The Federal Reserve is trying to slow inflation by raising interest rates. At the same time, corporate profits are at an all-time high. On tonight's show, we'll ask Taki Monolakis, an economist formerly at UMKC, if our monopolized economy is really what's driving inflation. Then, what do you know about the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico? Is it In his book, More Than a Wall, photojournalist David Bacon shows how the border is more than a wall that separates. It's the people and their history of common struggles against racism, labor trafficking, and a broken immigration system. In the news, some election analysis about the constitutional amendment vote in Kansas with implications for all. And next up for organizing, Trader Joe's. Our feature at the end of the show is Safety First with Mary Ario. She'll cover first, UPS workers demand heat safety. Second, Dollar Tree's history of discounting workplace safety. And third, funeral services were held for North Kansas City officer killed in the line of duty. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Sean Saving. Inflation is at a 40-year high, and that has policymakers and the public deeply concerned. We were told last year that disruptions to the supply chain and a rebounding economy coming out of the pandemic would cause only transitory upward pressure on prices. Then Russia invaded Ukraine, sending oil prices skyrocketing. And what might have been transitory now looks more and more like the new normal. In response, the Federal Reserve has begun raising interest rates in an attempt to cool down growth by making money more expensive to borrow, thus reducing overall demand. This approach to controlling inflation was last taken in the late 70s under then-Fed Chair Paul Volcker. It worked, but the economy also went into recession, throwing millions of people out of a job. However, a lot of pro prominent economists are warning that recession could be far worse for working people than inflation. And that, in fact, the problem isn't an overheated economy or too much money chasing too few goods. Rather, too few companies are controlling prices on too many goods. In other words, the monopolies have us with the short hairs and they're extracting excess profits under the guise of wage price spirals, supply chain issues, and labor shortages. As a scientist, I always ask, 
what do the data tell us? Fortunately, the economy is, is something we collect a lot of data on. And tonight we have on the show someone who can tell us just what the data say about monopolies and their pricing power in today's economy. The former director of the Center for Economic Information at UMKC, Taki Manalakos. Taki, welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. And uh, I, this is my third time, I think. And I'd like to just congratulate all of you on your award at the Labor Notes Conference. I think um, it's a belated recognition of what a great show you guys have. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Hats off to Judy. I think that's that's all. That's hers. <laughs> uh, it's all her hard work that makes this happen. Um, you, know, you know, basic economics tells us that the price of goods of a good has three broad components. There's the labor costs, your employee wages and benefits. Uh, non-labor costs like raw goods, energy, debt service, taxes, et cetera. And finally, the markup of profits over the first two. Uh, the good folks over at the Economic Policy Institute recently did a study on this. And you know, what did they find over the past couple of years when it comes to the components of price increases? Well, uh, they did indeed recently do a study on this, Sean. But um, I would, what they basically found was that unlike the period, well, I think we should back up a little bit. I think okay. we should say that, you know, um, as you correctly pointed out in your introduction, in the post-World War II period, there have been two main periods of inflation in the U.S. economy. There was the period of the 1970s. Uh, I won't get into the causes. There was the, the Volcker-Reagan era of the 1980s. And we have the current inflationary shock that we're experiencing today. Now, what the folks at the Economic Policy Institute are saying is basically that, you know, the, the current inflationary episode is because uh, big corporations have been able to take advantage uh, of the COVID situation. And, and we should call it, for, this is one thing, you know, I'll give the Democrats some points for, we should call it price gouging. They've engaged in price gouging, forget inflation. It's, pr it's pure and simple price gouging. Okay. And uh, what the folks at EPI have been able to do is roughly estimate that about 60%, since you wanted a number, about 60% of the inflation that we're seeing today is it due to a rise in corporate profits? So, if you want a number, that's the basic number. Wow, wow! And how? And, and over the last forty years, corporate profits have made up a, a much smaller percentage of sort of price increases, right? I mean, is this about what? It's like, like a fifth of this, or something? In, in, in normal average over the last you know, average of the last forty is about right. So I, if, if I'm recalling the study correctly, I think you're basically correct. Yes. So yeah, okay. I, I think I think that's right. So you know, people like Larry Summers and, and Janet Yellen are saying, oh, well, we have wage price spirals. You know, because wages have been up, you know, anomaly, uh, you know, five percent. I mean, yeah. wow, that's great, right? But so why is it why is that not what's really driving this? Why is why are they wrong on that? So, I mean, Larry Summers, I, I, I can't resist since you mentioned his name. I hope <laughs> you'll allow me just to, the ability to share a couple of anecdotes. Larry Summers is not one that should be taken seriously. I know all the Wall Street gang think he's like the, the best thing since sliced bread. But Larry Summers is the man who, as head of the, IM, of the World Bank, excuse me, basically tried to make an argument that the developed countries should export all of their waste to Africa because it would be efficient to do so and good for the economy. And he wrote, he put, he put this on paper. I mean, it's hilarious. It's on paper. He actually said this. So this is part one of my Larry Summers anecdote. My second part of Larry Summers is he just doesn't stop. He, he was president of Harvard and as president of Harvard basically said that women can't be scientists because they should care for the children. So yeah. all, I'm, all, all of that is to say that people should take anything Larry Summers says with a big grain of salt. Okay, but are wages affecting price increases? The short answer is no. no so no. the standard, so the theory that they're going by 
is that price inflation is entirely determined by wages. So the, the two po point pieces of evidence I would use against this argument is, first of all, real wages have been falling. So workers are doing worse. So nominal wages might have gone up by 5%, but inflation has gone up by 9%. And so on net, workers are worse off than what they were pre-pandemic. Right. Other yeah, to make sure our listeners understand, a real wage increase means you have to take into account inflation, right? So inflation is 9%, but your wage increase is 5%. You've actually lost 4%. That's not a real raise. Normally, you got 5% raise, but you actually lost 4%, right? That's the, that's the idea? That's the, the idea. And I mean, just to thank you for the clarification, I would just say that, you know, like stuff is getting more expensive. Food is getting more expensive. Gasoline is getting more expensive. Uh, the price of used cars has gone through, shot through the roof. The right. price of airfare has gone up. So all this stuff keeps getting more expensive. And overall, it's about 9% more expensive. Right. But your wages have gone up by 5%. Right. So, yeah, how could they be what's driving this? What about oil prices? What about the increase in oil prices over the last six months? Is that contributing in some way? So uh, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, in June basically went up about 9% year on year. And of that 9%, about two percentage points were because of oil prices. Okay. So there is some – so oil is – playing some factor with oil prices coming back down in recent weeks, we should see that should help inflation a little bit, right? Yes, sir. That's correct. Okay. Uh, so if the data are indicating that, indicating that wages are driving up prices and non-labor inputs are only accounting for, you know, you said 2% you know, energy, for example, a small percentage, that leaves corporate profits as the main driver, as you were saying. What's allowing this? Like, why can't why have the pro corporations been doing this all along? I mean, if they can get away with it now, why could they not get away with it 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago? Well, I think this is an open question that economists don't have a good answer for. So, I mean, uh, the, uh, as you pointed out to me, uh, people like Robert Reich and indeed uh, Elizabeth Warren have been arguing for months now that inflation is all because of monopolization and uh, monopolies have been pushing up prices because they can. Um, I mean, I think there's something to that argument, but I'm not 100% sold, honestly. Uh, there's something to it in the sense that, um, you know, the Boston Federal Reserve came out with the paper um, uh, that basically says, let me get this number right, that the U.S. economy, and I quote, the U.S. economy is at least 50% more concentrated today than it was in 2005. Now, that's a huge, that's huge. That's a huge increase, right? So uh, it's absolutely true that concentration has been increasing. The only point I would make is that what else is new under the sun? Concentration has been increasing under capitalism since the 19th century. I mean, this is one of the things... Um, I'm sorry, I have to say that Marx was correct about. He correctly predicted in the, in the mid-19th century, before anyone else, that concentration is like the bread and butter of capitalism. But you can't explain change. I mean, this has been going up since then. I mean, there, it, it can't, I don't think it can actually account for the inflationary tendencies. Now, what you can say, which I would concede if you made this argument, is that, you know, concentration creates a kind of agreeable environment for firms to jack up their prices. And what the Federal Reserve authors say is that basically what concentration does is it allows firms to pass through their costs. So if the three components of costs that you itemized non-labor costs, labor costs, and, and markup costs. So when you have a shock to those costs, when you have concentration, they have more of the power to pass those on to the consumer. Right, because lack of there's no there's no competition that can say, well, I'll shave my prices a little bit. No. Right, there's lack of competition. I mean, that's part of the problem, right? That's right, yes. And you know, there's uh, uh, Biden has paid some lip service to this, um, his 
his FTC commissioner has uh, issued some rather strong statements about trusts and monopolies, but they haven't really done anything besides issue statements. Right. I'm going to come to that in a second. I'm going to do a reset here. You're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Sean Saving, and with us tonight is Taki Manalakos, economist and former director of the Center for Economic Information at UMKC. We are discussing the impact of increased monopolization and concentration in the economy on current inflation. So you were talking about the administrations. We've done a show on this in the past, actually, a few weeks ago I did one, on some of the administration's efforts, uh, initiatives to, to start looking at and taking seriously uh, uh, breaking up some of the trusts and monopoly power and this sort of thing. But these are these are long-term uh, uh, operations. This, this is going to take multiple years. You've got to keep maintain uh, some kind of political stability in D.C. to get this, to achieve this. You're going to have court cases. What is there anything that the, that the administration could be doing now that they're not doing uh, it could affect prices in the short run? I mean, the administration could be doing more, yes. I mean, uh, what the administration could be doing is, uh, in my opinion, well, it's been argued they could do price controls. Yes. So... I mean, this is not a particularly democratic policy. Nixon implemented it in the 70s. So, I mean, you could you could simply tell, you could order companies, you know. This is kind of lost on people. Like, these companies have people running them. You can tell them what to do. They're not this, like, external thing, like magic market. You tell them that you cannot increase your prices, and if you increase your prices, you will go to jail. Okay, that, that is a thing that Nixon did. And that is something that could be replicated. Can they do that without congressional approval? Uh, that is beyond my expertise. Yeah, I, I, that would be, I think might be the, the 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 hook here is you've got to get Congress on board with something like that. I, I uh, what about same would go with uh, windfall profits taxes? I mean, well, that, that would I, definitely. always read that in the game, like oh, windfall profits tax and monopoly. But is that, are those real? Has that ever happened? You know, that is something though that would definitely require congressional approval. Yeah. Um, so yes, you could do a windfall profits tax, but like, uh, look, my point when when my friends make these points to me, I say, look, you know. You're not really going to influence the Biden administration here. Your best bet is trying to go after the AFL-CIO. Listen, guys, you know, um, we've not been doing well since the 1970s. You need to get it together, and you need to oppose the capitalists. I mean, this is like your basic job function. This is like in your job description. You need to oppose the capitalists, and you need to support the workers, and you need to get with the program, guys. The the lab, labor share of income has been falling since the 1970s. What have you done about it? I think our best bet is going at it from that angle as opposed to the windfall profits tax or price controls. So, so strike, so workers should strike to demand higher wages? Yeah, I mean, I think workers should, they should try and organize, they should be supportive. I mean, I've not, like when the ALU organized, the Amazon Labor Union, I wasn't too too excited by the AFL's reaction to that. They should have been more supportive. So when unions, when people are trying to organize, um, they should be more on board and they should be encouraging more workers to organize. That sometimes may mean strikes, yes. And if it means a strike, so be it. That's the way it, it's been since capitalism was born. Um, but uh, that's my opinion. Well, so let's, that, that segues next to my next topic because let's say, so that gives corporations the excuse to say, well, these, price, these wage increases are causing us to happen. I mean, you know, whether it's true or not, they get to say things like this, and they have the they have the, the louder mouthpiece a lot of times. And they say, well, uh, you know, these it's all these wage increases. We got to raise prices, you know. Um, and people just reflectively go, oh, it makes sense, sure. Um, and therefore, now you've got the Federal Reserve saying, well, we've got too much money out there. People got too much money. It's chasing too few goods. We got to raise interest rates to slow this thing down so we can get inflation under control. But that's sort of like a, that's a very broad brush approach. And what's the risk of what, what are we risking if that with that approach of the Fed saying, well, we're going to control inflation by just slowing the economy down? 
Well, I mean, I mean the, the thing is that the, the capitalists are not stupid. They've discovered over time that the business cycle is not good for capitalism. And once they discovered that the business cycle was bad for business, um, they created the Federal Reserve uh, to moderate the business cycle. And that's been going on since like the 1930s. Um, and they're, they're just going to make that argument. And the response to the argument is that, first of all, it's false. It's just not true. And second of all, we don't believe you because you are simply, you, what you have at your core of your mission is the promotion of the capitalist class. And we think that is what you're promoting and you don't have in your heart the interests of the workers. So what will happen if the inflation, if, if the Fed continues to raise interest rates? If the Fed continues to raise interest rates, like the sun will set, it will see a recession. And then that means job losses. Big job losses. And that's inarguably a far worse outcome than even 10% inflation. Well, I mean, if you're a capitalist, it's not that big a deal. It's okay. You'll survive. As, as long as workers are kept in line, it's okay. Let there be a recession. I mean, what do you have to lose? You'll still be sitting in your Manhattan apartment. So is 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 that the only tool, I mean, that the government has at this point that they're, gonna, that they're willing to, to use? Is that basically is the Federal Reserve, right? If they want to control inflation, what, that's the only tool they're willing to use, right? That is what Biden has said repeatedly. Well, is So I, I know this is a big... This is this Inflation Reduction Act that they're trying to work through Congress right now right. Uh, with this new deal with Manchin. Is, there, is that got anything in it that will help inflation in the short term, or is this all maybe long-term stuff? I don't even think it's long-term. I mean, they're talking about a 15% minimum tax and then some pro-climate change legislation, maybe, uh, but I think it's just eye candy. Yeah, so not really anything that's gonna. The name doesn't make much. I, the name didn't make much sense to me either. I, I can't figure out how inflation gets affected in the, in the short term by investments that take you know ten years, fifteen years to do. Well, I'm getting the uh, out of time signal from Judy and uh, Taki. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you very much. That was economist Taki Manolakos, former director of the Center for Economic Information at UMKC. I'm Sean Saving. Stay tuned for Joyce McCauley and her interview with David Bacon on his new book, More Than a Wall, on the Heartland Labor Forum. Tune in on the first Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. for Next Step Forward, a program highlighting millennials in the KC Metro that are using their talents, businesses, and activism to educate and uplift their communities. Join us for fresh insights, candid conversations and interviews that will make you think if you want to learn laugh and be empowered this is the show for you join me jasmine jones every first thursday of the month at 7 p.m right here on kkfi thanks for listening to kkfi be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at kkfi 901 fm and thanks for over 33 years of support Welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. Ed Smith and I are off this week, but we're pleased to bring you a show from the Heartland Labor Forum, one of the oldest labor radio shows in the country. Billing itself as radio that talks back to the boss, the Heartland Labor Forum has been around for more than 30 years, airing Thursdays at 6 p.m. and Fridays at 5 a.m. Central Time on KKFI 90.1 FM Kansas City Community Radio. The Heartland Labor Forum is one of the members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. More than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts across the country and around the world that, like your rights at work, Focus on issues affecting working people. Grandfather sang to me The weepy woman spoke Down beneath the trees is wisdom of the old I've seen plenty disrespect For the knowledge of the land it's my people who I see lost in other people's hands. Everybody's hoping 
outside the No todo está perdido, estoy con mi gente. Trabajo con miedo, pero yo soy consciente. I'm losing the fear, cause the work is here. Ojibwe and yakis, hope is in our ways. We show our sanity, nobody sees us, but we are running things. The bats and the land are sacred beings. Oricas, lencas, now we are the ones. Bringing and taking, caring for the others. Every morning I look out from the corner of the mud. I'm just here waiting to help you. There can be no fear for us. When the people, they come back like it used to be before. I want it better, better than it was before. Everybody's hoping to see you at the door, taking care of people you don't know. Hello, this is Joyce McCauley, and we are welcoming David Bacon, a photojournalist and labor activist. And in his book, More Than a Wall, David describes in words and pictures the devastating trials people go through to reach the wall and cross over from Mexico to the United States. David was a factory worker and labor organizer for 20 years with the United Farm Workers, the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, and others. His articles and photos have been exhibited in the U.S., Mexico, and Europe. His work has shown a light on the lives of the working class, particularly farm workers on the southern border of the U.S. He brings a unique perspective to the activities surrounding the wall. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Well, thanks for inviting me. So, pleasure to talk to you. The book is great. I really, I learned so much from reading that book. And I think that, you know, we one of the first things that, came to my mind as I was reading is how uninformed most people are concerning the activities and what actually goes on at the southern border. So you named your book More Than a Wall. Can you talk a little bit about how that title kind of leads the whole book? Sure. Well, um, the book starts out by looking at the wall itself because First of all, that's the way most people in this country think about the border. The first thing that comes to mind is the wall. But we are victims of a lot of stereotypes about the wall. And so one of the first things that we try and do is, is I guess you would say, deconstruct the wall or look at it as it really is. And um, while there are these very imposing Trumpian parts of it, of these, you know, like big steel bars, um, rising up, you know, 12, 15, 20 feet um, that look really kind of threatening. There are also a lot of other parts of the wall that are um, quite old, um, some parts that were made from um, metal plates that were sort of recycled from landing strips um, from aircraft carriers or even from, you know, World War II landing strips in the, in the Pacific. And it's sort of a reminder, first of all, that the wall is not rational that there are even places where there's no wall at all or where these you know, big imposing iron bar walls just suddenly stop and then there's nothing there. Um, so if the purpose were really to keep people from crossing, the wall has always been sort of a miserable failure. And it, its main value is its symbolism, you know, the ability of Trump to campaign um, by having his rally, people at his rally chant, um, chant build the wall. Um, but it's also kind of a there's a, a part of the wall that goes through um, Tijuana and then down to the Pacific Ocean. And um, these pictures are taken in a place that's ironically called the Parque de Amistad or the Friendship Park. And in this place, um, 
there was not only originally no wall there until um, the 1920s, but in the um, in the during the time when Nixon was president, they put up the first barbed wire. They strung barbed wire across the border to sort of symbolize the border at that place. And Pat Nixon, you know, President Nixon's yeah. wife, went down to the Friendship Park and made this little speech in which she said she hoped there would be a, an era in which there would be no wall and no separation between the U.S. and Mexico, sort of uh, uh, contradicted by what her administration had just done. So, you know, it's sort of a way of, of sort of saying the photographs and are a way of saying that, on the one hand, you know, the wall is a political symbol in the U.S., and it's used very consciously that way. But it's also, obviously, a place where people go through the desert and and cross. And that can um, lead to, well, for instance, every year we have four or 500 people that die in the desert trying to cross the border. And so the photographs show, the, for instance, the graveyard in in Holdfield in the Imperial Valley, um, where people are buried who have no identification on them and, you know, so are, are buried in kind of like this, this cemetery that's devoted to people who are discovered um, having died on the, on the border. But then what the book does is it, it goes beyond the wall, and that's why it's called More Than a Wall. Um, so the photographs show that the border is a big region where a lot of people live. Um, Tijuana, um, Ciudad Juarez are cities of over 2 million people each. And they are cities with rich history of social struggles by people who live there trying to get a better deal in life, um, you know, struggling for social justice. So there are images of some of those struggles. Um, there was a very famous strike that took place at a maquiladora, a, a border factory in Tijuana called Han Young. Um, there are str- uh, photographs of miners in Arizona and in um, in uh, Sonora, the Mexican state of Sonora, who have been on strike in, in Sonora. They've been on strike for 15 years now, and there are some you know images that show that. Um, in addition. There are images that show what are called by the people who live there, by the Mexicans who live there, um, uh, comunidades de resistencia, or communities of resistance. And these are um, communities that are set up on, by people on the outskirts of cities, like Tijuana, um, where people who have come to the border looking for work um, and Found, perhaps they found jobs, but they certainly have not found housing because one of the big problems of the border is that these cities have mushroomed over past decades and without any consideration of the need for people to find a place to live. And so people occupy land. And under the old Mexican constitution, until it was changed, um, it was the right of every a person in Mexico to have housing, and therefore people were entitled to squat, essentially, on federally owned land. And so they're on, on the outskirts of cities, there are very often these um, communities of resistance that have been created by people who need housing. And by no accident, really, uh, very often, because it's a struggle to do this, and people are, are, you know, sometimes the local government or the state government tries to reject people. And so the people who live there are used to fighting, <laughs> fighting for their rights. Yeah. And, of course, that doesn't just stay neatly confined in those barrios or those communities, but oftentimes it spreads into the places where people work. And so that strike I mentioned at the Hanyang Maquiladora in, in Tijuana grew out of or, or was organized by workers who lived in a community called Matrovio Rojas, um, which was set up by um, people basically looking for housing. And because they had to fight so hard, um, in this community um, for the right to live and the right to have a, a place where they could raise their families. They then took that struggle into the factory where they worked and struggled to organize an independent union and eventually went out on strike um, twice in order to um, get their union. So the the book is filled with these photographs of people's struggles and of resistance and of the daily lives of what um, what it takes to live 
in a city along the border or one of these communities. And they're, they're trying to say, well, okay, yes, the border is a wall, and it's important to recognize that, but the border is more than a wall. The border is a region. It's an area, and it's an area with lots of people living in there. And it, so the book tries to take a look at it. And it also includes the voices, some narratives of people um, who you know, participate in the strikes or in the land occupations or in other kinds of social movements on the border there. So you can kind of read people's voices and you can see the photographs that show you what's going on there. One of the areas that I enjoyed most, of course, was the uh, the part of uh, ch- the child labor. And I think that's something that's not understood either, that children are still working in uh, fields and and you know, accompany their parents there, and then the younger children who can't work because they're too little have to go anyway because of the lack of child care. And those pictures are are really kind of devastating because then we understand there's kids there that would like to go to school and are unable to, or they go for a short time and then have to stop and help parents in the fields. That's right. That's right. Actually, those those pictures came about um, taking those pictures. And the ones you're referring to are pictures of families that are um, harvesting green onions, yes. scallions, in a um, in a field in the um, San Luis Valley, which is or the Mexicali Valley, which is right south of the Imperial Valley. In fact, it's all really one big valley. It just has a, one name on the north of the border. We call it the Imperial Valley and south of the border. People call it the Mayakali Valley, but it's the same place. And um, and the way I wound up taking those photographs, actually, is because um, you know, I'm a labor writer and a labor reporter, and I've been following farm workers for God, a long time. And actually, I was an organizer for the Farm Workers Union and for other unions before I started doing this work. So um, in the process of, of reporting on the lives of farm workers who were affected by NAFTA, the labor side, the, the um, free trade agreement between the U.S. and Mexico, um, I learned about a group of workers in um, on the U.S. side of the border in the Coachella Valley, who farm workers who every year they would be hired to harvest um, green onions, and then one year, not long after the agreement went into effect. Um, they discovered that the company that they were working for was transferring their work somewhere else. And so they staked out the field at night, and they discovered the um, the company um, taking the water pumps that were pumping irrigation water up into the field and loading them on trucks and taking them away. And they followed the trucks, and they followed the trucks across the border and discovered that this company had gone into partnership with some Mexican growers in the Mexicali Valley, and they were um, basically growing the same product and, you know, stopping their operations on the U.S. side and and starting the ones on the Mexican side. And because they, the whole purpose of the company in doing this was to lower their labor costs, um, they were paying the workers on the Mexican side just a small fraction of what they were paying on the U.S. side. In fact, the pay was so low that um, families, in order to survive, had to bring their kids to work with them. And as you were saying, when they were old enough to work, there they were working. And because the families didn't have money to pay for child care, um, they would bring the little littlest children with them. And you can see photographs of you know the kids on the blanket with the bottle in their mouth yeah. you know, while their parents are out there in the background um, picking the green onions. And this is something that was pretty widespread. It wasn't just this one company that did it. Um, it was um, something that you could see in, in many different places. And there was a big campaign, um, especially by a, um, a sort of pioneering professor at the university in, in Mexicali, um, Gemma Lopez Limon. And Gemma Lopez became an authority in Mexico on child labor and testified at many hearings about it and created such a outcry that eventually the Mexican government began really clamping down on and enforcing Mexico's child labor laws, which, you know, Mexico has child labor laws just the way we do, um, but they were being violated, and the government was allowing this to happen because they wanted the investment of U.S. investors in Mexico and didn't want to, you know, kind of raise a stink about it. 
And so um, they let this happen. And, and him and the other activists uh, along the border, um, including school teachers, the school teachers were very outspoken about this. And there are some images of the schools in this area as well in the book, too, that go along with the ones of the um, kids working out in the fields. So, you know, yeah, it shows if, that, if, that when people go ahead. speak up, they can they can change things. Yeah, and I do remember in the book you do have some um, uh, some of the teachers talking about the kids and and uh, that's their, right, you know, and their interest in getting them right. to school. We have like a minute left, so you've given us so much information. I do want to kind of ask you: Has the renegotiation of NAFTA done anything to help with the um, the labor conditions in Mexico? Well, there have been some union elections that have allowed workers in especially auto plants to get rid of the company union and to organize their own independent union. So to that extent, this new agreement um, did have some labor protections in in it that seemed like they're helping some workers. But unfortunately, the net result of these trade agreements is to make poverty worse in the end. And that's what causes people to leave home and to look for jobs and employment elsewhere, including in the United States itself. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, again, the book is fabulous. We've been talking with David Bacon, who is the photojournalist and labor activist. And he has just uh, published More Than a Wall is his current book. He's got several out there. So... And could I could I make one? Um, if people are interested in the book, the way to um, find it is to send me an email, and that's real simple. Um, my email address is dbaconphotography at gmail dot com. dbaconphotography at gmail gmail dot com to get one of the books. And it, there you go. It's wonderful. The photos are amazing, and the information is very um interesting so again thank you and have a good evening well thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it i really appreciate it Hello, this is Mary Aria for Safety First. First, sending drivers out to die. UPS workers demand heat safety amid record temperatures from www.mbcnews.com for July 31st. With heat waves rolling across the country in states like Texas and Oklahoma experiencing record hot summers, workers exposed to the elements are increasingly struggling under the heat. More than a dozen UPS employees and union leaders say this year more workers seem to be getting sick and have been hospitalized because of the heat than ever before. In response, they are demanding that the company put more safety measures in place. Left and right, people are falling out, said Jeff Shenfield, a union steward in Dallas and UPS veteran of 25 years. Something is different this year. A lot more people. UPS is the world's largest package delivery company, and its ubiquitous brown trucks and warehouses are largely without air conditioning. After record earnings last year, the company installed cameras in its delivery trucks but did not change its heat safety protocols, according to the union, compounding a long-held grievances about company priorities. The majority of UPS workers, some 350,000, are covered by the biggest union contract in North America, which expires next year. Heat protections will be one of the key issues in the upcoming negotiations, according to the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which represents the workers. The Teamsters issued a public letter last week outlining a series of steps it says UPS should take immediately to improve the safety of its drivers given the weather. They include providing fans in every truck, rather than just by request, cooling necktiles, consistent supplies of water and ice, more breathable uniforms, and hiring more drivers to reduce the workload. By refusing to implement these safety measures, the company is literally sending drivers out to die in the heat, said Sean O'Brien, general president of the union. Next, discounting safety, Dollar Tree's history of ignoring workplace safety from www.osha.gov news release for August 1st. 
one of the nation's largest discount retailers continues to expose employees to the risk of injuries by flagrantly ignoring workplace safety regulations. This time with hazardous conditions found at two Ohio locations in Maple Heights and Columbus. Since 2017, the U.S. Department of Labor, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and state OSHA programs have conducted more than 500 inspections at Family Dollar and Dollar Tree, operated by their parent company, Dollar Tree, Inc., and found more than 300 violations. During these inspections, OSHA routinely finds exit routes, fire extinguishers, and electrical panels dangerously obstructed or blocked, unsafe walking working surfaces, and unstable stacks of merchandise. Following the Ohio inspections, OSHA proposed penalties of $1.2 million for multiple violations, including those already mentioned at other stores. Family Dollar and Dollar Tree stores have a long and disturbing history of putting profits above employee safety, said Assistant Secretary for Occupational Safety and Health Doug Parker. Each hazard could lead to a tragedy. A Fortune 500 company, Dollar Tree has been a leading operator of discount variety stores in North America for more than 30 years. Headquartered in Chesapeake, Virginia, the company operates more than 16,000 stores across 48 contiguous states and five Canadian provinces. Supported by a nationwide logistics network and more than 193,000 employees. In 2021, the company reported gross profit of $7.7 billion. The company has 15 business days from receipt of citation and penalties to comply, request an informal conference, or contest the findings. Finally, funeral services held for North Kansas City officer killed in the line of duty from the Kansas City Star July 20th and 27th. The law enforcement community, family and friends of North Kansas City police officer Daniel Vasquez gathered Wednesday morning, July 27th to pay their respects at the Vineyard Church in Kansas, Kansas City. Vasquez was shot 10.40 a.m. Tuesday, July 19th, after he pulled over a gray Ford Taurus with a temporary Missouri tag that expired in 2018 in North Kansas City. Authorities allege that the suspect left the vehicle during the stop and opened fire on Vasquez. His family, friends, co-workers, law enforcement family, and community have lost a loving and respectable community service servant who will be missed beyond measure. His parents, siblings, and fiancé wrote in his obituary. This is Mary Ario for Safety First. And now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar, I'm Judy Ansel. Saturday, August 6th at 4 p.m., there is a big demonstration, Solidarity for Climate Justice, Fighting for Our Lives. That's going to be at Islas Davis Park, which is 1000 Locust Street, 10th and Locust, and it's sponsored by Clean Air Now. Solidarity rally to kick off the ATU, that's Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 1287 negotiations. That's for the drivers uh, and the mechanics of the Area Transportation Authority, our bus system. Monday, August 15th, 845 a.m. at 18th and Forest which is where the negotiations are going to begin. Return of the Kansas City Faith Labor Alliance with keynoter Pat Jones-Macklin, Thursday, August 18th, 7.30 a.m., Trinity United Methodist Church, sponsored by Missouri Jobs with Justice, and you should call them if you plan to go. Kansas City Freedom Fest, August 27th, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., celebrating women's reproductive rights. This is being sponsored by Planned Parenthood, and it's going to be at UAW Local 249, 8040US69, Pleasant Valley, right across from the Ford plant. And save the date, Jobs with Justice Labor Day Picnic, Monday, September 5th, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Swope Park Bandstand. You can find our calendar on the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page, and be sure to tune in next week. Our show is going to be an interview with Jeff Hayes on CWA Organizing in Missouri and Union Leader Series, ATU 1287's Will Howard. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. Stay tuned for the Thursday night special. It's Jasmine Jones. School, I had a plan to sink fame and fortune with a 
listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our Because we are the working class and place to be He said if I were Frank Sinatra I'd pull strings And through political bull You'd be on top of the glorified garbage pile With all of their plastic smiles You'd be with all the self-appointed kings and queens With all their Struggle and fight for the guy.